Let's face it, running a construction company can be chaotic. As business owners, we wear a lot of hats and we're constantly putting out fires. Luckily, there's a way to work simpler with Builder Trend. I'm a huge advocate for using technology to help run AFT, and Builder Trend is one of the most crucial tools I rely on to keep me on top of every detail. Built just for home builders and remodelers, this is an easy to use platform that helps manage all aspects of my business. My team's been using Builder Trend's project management platform for the last five years. And we love that they're always improving and adding new features to make our lives easier. This is something that we've really tried to take on internally to find ways to improve our system every day. Build a Trend just released a full set of financial services, added new tools like Takeoff to make estimates more accurate, and launched a total rebrand with a new mission to help change the future of construction. And we are on board. To learn more about how Build a Trend can help calm the chaos in your construction business, Visit buildatrend.com backslash AFT. When you schedule a demo, you'll receive an exclusive 60-day money-back guarantee only available to my podcast listeners. I'm following Build a Trend into the future in construction. Come on board with us. We are super excited to announce that we have our fourth Contractor Coalition Summit happening in Austin, Texas this fall. Come out and visit with us on September 14th, Thursday. Conference will end on Sunday, September 17th. We're going to have an amazing collection of builders all throughout the country. Uh, some amazing vendors will be there in support. We're also going to have a session on construction instruction with Mark LaLiberté, which is going to be part of the summit. Just amazing content, networking, uh, ways that all of us can enhance our brand, our product, and especially our organization, looking down to the very core of who we are as builders and how we're operating to make sure that we're operating at the highest level. The camaraderie and the knowledge shared between all the builders and the teachers that come to instruct are super valuable. So make sure you sign up for the Contractor Coalition Summit. Again, whether you're a new company just starting out in your first couple of weeks of business or you're a seasoned company, there's going to be plenty of information and it's super valuable to attend. So we'll see you in Austin. The stuff that we're doing now in um, just basic kitchen remodels or bathroom models, I mean, that was extreme luxury even in the early 2000s, for example, like you go into a bathroom, there's six different kinds of tile. There's a floor tile, there's a curb tile, there's a niche tile. Like, like it's not just, you know, a 12 by 12 on the floor and a mosaic on the, on the shower floor and it's curbless, it's a pressed pan. Like these projects are getting so complicated in a lot of ways. So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast and we have Steve Tankersley on. Welcome, Steve. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you on. So Steve is co-owner with Heather. Heather is actually was a guest a while back on the on the podcast. And I know we've collaborated a lot and you're co-owner as well as director of pre-con estimating. So it's going to be fun to kind of break down, you know, how you operate, how we operate and just, you know, another perspective. I know you come from a commercial background as well. And uh, uh, maybe we'll start there. I mean, something before we got into this, Steve, is you were talking about allowances, which kind of intrigued me because... I know one thing in speaking and meeting with you over the years is you're really big as we are, you know, trying to get information, architects on board, designers, you know, get involved in pre-construction, um, notwithstanding the reality of our world, uh, not everything is always decided even as much as, you know, ideally it is. So how are you guys operating with allowances? Yeah. I mean, you know, in the, in the best ideal situation, everything's selected. We have firm fixed pricing on every single material. But when you build in like a 7,000 foot house, I mean, there's so many moving parts, you maybe don't have the cabinet, you know, hardware picked. And so naturally, inevitably, there's going to be some allowances. But, you know, first of all, we take, try to take a stance of everything's selected and everything's, you know, bid out and 
it's, um, you know, itemized with the actual price. But we, we do use allowances and we're really transparent with that with our clients. Um, we actually have a finished allowance worksheet that's kind of tied to our proposal. So when we're going through, if everything's picked, great, we're going to have it listed out as, hey, we're using, you know, these MTech handles and there's 36 of them in the house and they're $180 each. Um, but the client can see that what it is MSRP um, it, before tax and markup and uh, really helps protect us, too. So if there's any escalations or helps the customer, too, if there's any de-escalations, if all of a sudden lumber goes down, yeah, they're going to get a credit back on what that difference, difference is. So, um, again, allowances, you know, really just help protect everyone. But then it also is gives the customer some transparency in the estimating process. So even if you have everything decided, I'll give an example, even on the hillside stuff that we'll do, um, <clears throat> we'll have an allowance for like hard dig. Cause I mean, we have a good idea of the soil support and where we're going to hit hard dig, like Caliche rock. And, you know, we're going to have to bring in, you know, equipment, sometimes a jackhammer into the mountain. Uh, and it's hourly rate. We're tracking it, you know, through our daily logs. Um, essentially there is a possibility that we can be over the allowance. Right. And I think with hard dig, it's one thing. However, how are you handling allowances? Let's say you have a hundred thousand in for cabinetry and it comes in over. Um, how are you working through any overages or busts? It's easy when it comes in under, but when it's over, you know, how are you massaging that with your clients? Yeah, we start off with, you know, full transparency. Number one, um, if there is a difference and it's over, there's a couple different trains of thought on this. Like It's like, hey, if it's over, you know, you should get the markup on that and, and, and mark it up, whatever your contract states it is. We kind of just go at costs on, on that. We kind of feel like sometimes if, if there's an overage, um, it's really an unfortunate circumstance and we're trying to ease the pain as much as we can for the client. So let's say we have a $100,000 cabinet allowance. It comes at $118,000. They're going to get $18,000 change order. Um, really doesn't, you know, it does bring down our margin on the project, which is unfortunate. But then also it makes that, that presentation and that kind of sale to the client a little bit easier to swallow because they can see what we had and they can see the new estimate. It's really easy to do the math. And, and from your commercial background, I know you have a commercial background. How, how is that, especially with your pre-con role, doing the estimating pre-con, what, you know, what impact did that commercial background have just on how you're running the pre-con department of Tankersley now? Yeah. I mean, a little bit of background on myself. When I got out of, of school, I uh, got a degree in construction management. <clears throat> I went into estimating and the company I work for, big commercial company, they put all their project engineers through estimating first because it really give you, you know, a full background on the process and how to build. So when I came out of school, I spent, you know, five years as an estimator before I worked in the project management. And that gave me a great foundation. When I was doing that, um, that process of, of estimating, I learned a foundation of how to properly estimate, which is, you know, really going down to digging into every single detail, making those detailed notes of the plans of what's included in the scope, number one, but then also writing the correct invitations, sub, you know, invitations to bid to your subcontractors with detailed scopes and, um, scopes and notes, um, going through a pre-construction site investigation process and really, you know, opening the walls up if we need to and crawling in the attic or going in, you know, under the house. And uh, when I worked in commercial, we called it uh, FreeCon, because the, the company, this is, you know, 15 years ago and the company I worked for didn't charge for pre-con services. They're just kind of hoping to get the job. We don't do that anymore. We do charge service for that at our company. Um, 
but I learned about that pre-construction process and we started applying it to residential. I think, you know, you were one of the first contractors I met that was applying it successfully. And I, I meet more and more every single day. And I, I try to, you know, educate uh, our peers on that process. But, you know, going back to our commercial background, it really starts off with detailed scopes of work, um, communication and trade partners, understanding your plans, spending the time to really dive in because it does take a lot of time. It's interesting. You, you said something that I think for many listening who um, may have caught that, you, you had talked about that when you worked on the commercial side, that you actually had bid invitations, right? That you're actually going through and truly estimating the project. This is something we try to make a huge emphasis on at the company. The reason I say that is because it's one thing to get bid documents. You know, our CDs, our complete draw, you know, construction drawings, send those out for bid. But if we want to be accurate, it's way more important that we can go through and we actually can do the takeoffs, right? If we're doing the takeoffs and the estimating, we know it's going to, what the scope is for metalwork, concrete, excavation. We can document that. We can put on an invite. We can put on a scope doc, send it out to our subs. Well, now they're not only getting just, hey, here's a design book, here's a building set of plans. They've actually seen us bet the project so that they can clearly understand what their scope of work and what we expect their bid to reflect. How, you know, in commercial, you and I know that that's, it's very common. You have a pre-con team. They're spending a lot of time doing takeoffs, so they have a good anticipation of what the costs are because they're doing this. And then they're putting together essentially the bid invite with scope attached. You know, the reality of commercial to residential, you know, I'm, I'm sure as your company's growing, you're probably, you know, implementing that a lot more. How, how does that look today? Yeah. When I first started the company, uh, 2017, I, I came in, I was like, man, I wish I had some kind of platform to be able to send invitations to bid. 2018, we actually found Builder Trend and it had, that was one of the best things I, I found in Builder Trend was that um, bid invitation system that they have in there. Um, but when you talk about invitations to bid, it's critical to go through the plans and find all the little things that are in the plans that maybe your concrete sub or your tile sub misses and write it out. So if you are getting multiple bids, let's say you're getting two or three tile bids, you know, you want to make sure everyone's apples to apples. So make sure that they're doing their edge trim and a pencil detail, not Schluter. Um, but as we grew, we found developing that process, um, you know, it was just key and just making sure that all the, all the bids were, you know, apples to apples and, and we find that scope and, and implement those unit prices to develop a complete budget before we go out, um, you know, present to the owner. I love that. And it's interesting when you talk about, um, <clears throat> you know, the joint venture of engineering. So in the commercial world, as we know, a lot of times, it, it well, I, I should say it's not often, but sometimes it happens where they're coming to you, Steve, and they're saying, "Okay, we have this project, and it, and it, where most of us understand that the engineer is going to be dialing in all the scope and specifications and details, and then you send it out for bid." A lot of cases, you're involved in the trade partners, you're involved in the suppliers, saying, "Okay, steel contractor, con you know, concrete, let's ve this, let's design and engineer this together." And the reason <clears throat> that they do that is because one, they can control pricing. Number two, especially with COVID, they can control material because the engineer may specify some sort of structural steel that you can't get or is difficult to make and fabricate, whereas there could be an option that's readily available that's a lot quicker. And so as you think about that in residential, the complexity of trying to involve trade partners in that pre-com process, is that happening? You know, have you had any success with that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so with our process, you know, we're budgeting continuously through pre-construction. A lot of times on those key, those really key trades, let's say, um, say we're doing a, you know, $2 million renovation. We're going to bring in the mechanical sub, the plumbing sub, um, the cabinet sub, you know, the trades that have a lot of variable and a lot of technical expertise. We're going to bring them in early to help us budget this project and figure out, hey, other ways we can save money, you know, or the ways we can not only save money, but maybe make a better system. You know, can we zone this AC? Um, and so it's not heating up the entire upstairs and the downstairs at the same time. So we're going to have those, those kind of conversations early in pre-construction, but it's really key to have a collaborative relationship with the designer, architect, the owner, and us. And if we're not being supported by any and one of those key figures, this whole thing is going to fall apart, right? So if we go out to a job and we bring in, you know, let's say the, the, uh, the designer specified a certain structural system and we brought out our, our framer or our steel sub and they come up with an alternate one that might save some money um, or might have some better aesthetics. And we present that to the owner or the, the architect. We want to have an open mind say, yeah, I know that might be a good idea, but if they're shut down to that stuff, you know, it's, it's not going to work out. So. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up. So what does that look like on your projects? I know that, um, you and I are big proponents of having a really good architect and designer involved early in the process. Uh, do you get any pushback from clients on that? Yeah, sometimes. So if we do get pushback, you know, it's probably not a good fit. I have a couple stories, recent stories um, I can share um, of, you know, really great examples and not, not so great examples. Um, recently we had a project client came to us. It was a 5,000 foot home. They want to renovate top to bottom. And, um, they uh, want to keep it under a million dollars. I was like, there's just, no, we can't do that. It's under, you know, it's going to be at least, you know, $250, $300 a square foot. So we went through this and I brought my concerns with the design team. And I said, hey, this, they did hire us for pre-construction. We started going through the detailed budgeting and this project was pushing close to $2 million. Brought my concerns up with the design team. And I said, hey guys, this project is double what the client said they want to spend. What can we do? And the designer pushed back to me and said, there's no way that's impossible. We could rebuild the whole house for that price. And this was a complete cost plus fee proposal. So everything was transparent. Um, and at that point, I knew that this was this wasn't going to work out. If the designer's not backing us, they're just going to sell us down river and they're going to help find someone cheaper, which is exactly what this client did. Um, we got paid for our time and uh, we parted ways amicably with the client and um, they're looking for another contractor. That was, you know, a few months ago. We have another project, a little larger project um, with an architect that we have a great relationship with. And, um, you know, again, project is, you know, over the client's desired budget, presents to the architect. I said, hey, these are, we're, we're going over the client's budget. What can we do? We came up with some collaborative options some some VE value engineering options to kind of bring it down. And then we present it together as a team to the client. It's actually this week. And the client uh, is kind of digesting some of those options. And again, completely transparent. It's cost plus fee. And uh, we're going to you know, pivot on that design, kind of meet somewhere in the middle on that design to uh, make this project reality for the client. So kind of two stories of one where a designer will back you as a contractor and you have that full collaborative team. And, and another one where you know, maybe you don't have that backing and the, kind of the whole thing falls apart. I, I think what's interesting about that 
is that there's ability you have today at this stage of your career and experience to understand the red flags, right? Not just as you're identifying potential clients, but also in the relationship of the project itself. So with that first example, as I think about the red flags there, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that maybe Steve 1.0, right? Early in your career, you're starting to take a sleep. You need the work. Like essentially be a yes man, right? You're gonna figure out whatever you can because you want the project. Um at least early in my career, that's how it was, right? You 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 want it, you're gonna do everything you can. You, you're overly optimistic without understanding, okay, some things are already going down this, you know, this lane that I know where we're gonna end up. How has that experience, life experience changed for you where you could identify the red flags and just be like, I can pull out even if it's gonna mean lost revenue? Well, I mean, <clears throat> we've had not many, we've had our share of nightmare clients. Um, we can count on, you know, one or two fingers how many we've had, <clears throat> but they're enough to scar you to say, look, we're going to stay away from this. I touched that hot stove. I'm going to touch that stove again. Um, so I think every contractor has to go through that experience at some point of a nightmare client to understand what those red flags, those pitfalls were. Um, Pre-construction, that whole process has eliminated a lot of those potential clients. I'd rather, much rather have a nightmare client in pre-construction than during construction because we can pull out pretty quickly if we need to. Um, but that, that process, I, and I tell our clients in the initial sales console about our process, you know, you asked if, if a client pushes back. I mean, sometimes they do, but I tell them this is your chance to work with us in a controlled environment rather than the first day you work with us, we're demoing your walls or we're breaking ground in your foundation. And we want to make sure we're interviewing you just like you're interviewing us. We want to make sure we're a good fit because we're about to go down a road that is uh, very long and it could be very stressful. And we want to make sure we can handle that stress together. So that pre-construction process not only helps develop a project uh, accurately and successfully, but also develops that relationship with the client, which is really key. So as you think about red flags and without getting as specific, because I, in case any <laughs> previous client ever listens to this, what were some things in your opinion that made those projects not pan out, pan out as you had hoped? You know, I just, you know, as I kind of tee this up for you, I look back at my career and, you know, I think there were a few things for me where I've had projects go south. One, you know, it was my failure to set realistic expectations, right? Um, we've all heard the thing, the, the term over-promise, under-deliver, right? We want to be um, under-promise, over-deliver. That's the goal. And even recently, we had our... Uh, you know, we try to move a client in too early, right? Because of things happening in personal life. And, you know, whenever you do that and you kind of work outside of your operating procedure, or expedite something that's probably not in a position to do so, it puts everyone in a bad spot. Um, as you look back, you know, learning experiences, I know now it's allowed you to identify the red flags where you can pull out early. Um, what does that look like now? Just looking back on those past experiences. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a lot of, I, I always look, there's so many factors, right? It's what the clients do for a living. Um, number one, we start with that and we go work from there. You know, if it, sometimes if a client is in the industry, let's say they're a, they're a contractor, they're a roofing contractor, a commercial, um, commercial GC. I always tell them like, Hey, we might not be the best fit. Why do you need us? You know, there's always that, you know how to do this. Why do you need us? Um, I start with that and I work way back to to how they treat their spouse. If, if she treats her husband horrible or he treats her horrible, why are they going to treat us any different? Um, and it's just, we look, we look for cool projects for cool people. 
And um, as we work through that, there's a lot of red flags, but it's just really personality wise. And how do you communicate? Um, are you texting and calling me at eight o'clock? Are you yelling at me? You know, if you're already yelling at me in pre-construction, this is not going to work out during construction because it gets a whole lot more stressful. Um, we had a job recently in pre-construction that, uh, you know, it's like if you're listening to this podcast and you're a contractor, you can probably relate. Every job is, you know, it's, it seems like everything's over everyone's budget all the time. This project was over their budget. Um, the wife was was so upset about this being up over her budget that she couldn't answer her phone or call me or come to her office to meet to talk about some VE options and how we get down. And her husband called me and said she's so upset about this that she can't even talk. She hasn't talked in weeks or days and that uh, they're going with another contractor. Look, I mean, if, if that upsets you that much, our budget, then like I can't imagine how this would be during construction if we find <laughs> something, you know, completely unexpected um, or our project does run over schedule or something happens. Um, so really, I, you know, again, just a, we, we, we missed a landmine on that one. So um, it, it's I, I interesting. Not, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, when you say you miss a landmine, it's funny you say that because there's a lot of value in saying no, right? Sometimes it's a blessing, those projects you miss, because as you alluded to, you know, we all understand construction that it can catapult into something much grander and much more challenging, you know, as you get into the actual build and especially on a renovation where you're finding all kinds of surprises, uh, typically, especially in some of these older homes. Yeah. And, and you and I kind of operate in some different markets. We do a lot of renovations, not so much new construction. Um, you do a lot of new construction, not, you know, not so much renovations. We do renovations, people living in the home. I don't think you guys do. So we have a different mix of clientele and a, a different expectations. Um, and it, it can be challenging, but people are people in the end of the day. If you can understand people's personalities, um, we're really heavy in uh, disc training, if you're familiar with that, and understanding, you know, who, uh, you know, is a high D or who is a high I and understanding their personalities and how to communicate with them best. So walk through that for anyone listening that hasn't heard of disc training, you know, explain what that is. Uh, disc is uh, it's, it's personality assessments like Myers-Briggs. There's different kinds of assessments online. I think you take a, a free one. Um, it's understanding your personality, whether you're very dominant and you're, you're make quick decisions. Okay. You're a high D if you're very outgoing and, and, uh, you know, great, uh, rambunctious personality, maybe you're high I, um, S's are you more, maybe more reserved and analytical and C's are maybe more compassionate <clears throat> and understanding those people's personalities. If you're working with a high SC person, they're not going to make a decision right away and you have to present them all the information. You work with a high D or high I like me, you know, I can make a decision about five minutes and, uh, and, and live with it. So understanding those personalities and what kind of client you're working with, um, it, actually, that's really key. So with that, you know, personality analysis, I think there's a lot of value there. Understanding not just you individually, but your team, you know, your, your customer base. I would imagine it's probably pretty unrealistic to, you know, customer comes in to interview with you, Steve, and you're like, Hey, take this personality assessment, you know, to see if I want to work with you. But I guess what's realistic for you guys is to identify key factors, right? Key, key things, you know, red flags, if you will. But internally, how are you implementing that to understand your employee's personality? Because I'd imagine that does impact how they communicate with the client and impacts training and systems internally. How are you at least vetting training and just coordinating the personality of each of your employees at the company? 
Yeah, we, we actually do disc uh, assessments when we hire. So part of the hiring process and part of the onboarding process is a disc personality test. Um, doesn't have any impact usually on hiring, but we want to make sure that they're the right person. Maybe if they're going to be an estimator, you know, we don't want to uh, be a high D, high I person who's going to make quick decisions and be very, you know, brash, um, maybe a more analytical, you know, more reserved person. Um, so there's that. And then also understanding how they work together. If you're a high SC personality, how do you communicate with a DI or vice versa? We actually do those trainings. We share them with each other. We all know our personalities within the company. And we've actually held some trainings, you know, every every quarter or so of talking about, you know, disc training and how to communicate with this person. I mean, that's really the hardest part of this job is communicate, communicating with people. The, the building part is actually pretty simple. Usually um, it's working with people, working with clients, your subcontractors, your employees, your vendors, and making sure that their feelings aren't offended or that they're being responded to appropriately. That's the hardest part of this job. It's funny you say that because anyone that's been in management of some level and especially in the trades, especially as like a superintendent or managing um, suppliers and installers, there's this really fine balance that you have to be really pressing, right? You have to be, I don't want to say aggressive, but you have to be vigilant, right? And you have to be on top of things. But at the same time, you have to be able to be a little compassionate, as you mentioned. I mean, there's this fine balance. How internally, as you've done the disc training, you know, and evaluations with each of your employees, especially in the hiring process, how does that impact how you communicate with each member, you and Heather? How does it impact, you know, direction of uh, company procedures and training and implementation, knowing the personalities of each of your team members? Yeah. So Heather is, she's all for, she's a high D, high I, high SC, you know, which is really <laughs> rare. So, so that's probably why she's really good at her job. She runs the operations for our company. Um, <clears throat> her and I, you know, we learned how to communicate with each other. We've been married, you know, over 10 years now. But within the company, when I'm talking with certain people in the company, I have to understand that person needs all the information in front of them to make a decision. And they need adequate time or they need a deadline to make that decision. So there's certain people in the company, I'm like, hey, you need to do this, this, and this, because this, this, and this, and this is who you need to call. You need to do it by Friday. And it's very specific versus other people in the company. It's like, hey, I need to have this done. And they'll ask you, okay, when you need it done by, great, it'll be done. So it's just understanding those key people. And sometimes when those people don't understand how they communicate with each other, it can create problems. And that's when, you know, you get a little bit of drama in the company. So we're always trying to understand, and it's also with your employees and your and your customers, and just that constant understanding how we communicate. Um, that's the hardest part. So you have to share some advice because I think you and Heather are you know, one of the unique couples that have, you know, an amazing marriage and relationship. You're running a company. It's it's hard to do. I know that she runs operations. You run pre-con. How do you have or do you you know clear definition to understand, you know hat on, hat off, you know, personal life, work life, at home with the family, on vacation, you know, the, the, how the batons pass at work, you know, that balance that you both need to work together and, and thrive together. Uh, well, like the key, I mean, I, I'm not an expert in this by any means. The key is it's clearly defined roles. And it's, and it's like that number, we start with that. And so I, I stay in that pre-construction estimating lane. Heather's doing operations, so managing our project managers, our field crews, the schedules. And as long as we kind of stay in those lanes, we're usually, we're usually pretty good. Um, sometimes our problems are when we cross over and I kind of go to our job sites and I'm like, hey, why are you doing it like this? And she gets real defensive, right? 
and or same with me. She comes over and, you know, she's working on something I'm working on and I'm like, hey, I got this handled. So at work, we keep defined roles and we stay in other's lanes and we try not to cross over and we do a pretty good job of that. Um, at home, I think, you know, we try to limit it at home. I think anyone who's who works together in a marriage and says, hey, we work is work. We, we turn off at home. I, I, I don't know. I think I think it's BS personally, but, you know, everyone takes it home. We talk about it, but we also catch each other and like, look, I don't want to talk about this anymore. We're going to talk about it tomorrow. Um, and we catch each other when we're talking about it too much, especially in front of the kids. We have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. Um, my seven-year-old is actually in the conference room right now watching baseball. He's on summer break. <laughs> so, you know, it is a family-owned company and we take that seriously. But, um, you know, we try to leave work at work and we try not to bring it home. But, you know, to say you never bring it home is, is not always the case. I do love the advice, though, when you said clearly the fun roles and as you were saying that, I was just thinking about any company. I mean, if that can work for a marriage, you know, a couple that's operating together, running a business, uh, it shows the importance because so many of us in any business, whether you're designer, architect, builder, it doesn't matter. So many of us in our companies, no matter how big or small they are, a lot of us may think, well, I'm a small company. I really don't need roles. But even if you're two people, three people, five or 27, it doesn't matter. I, I've seen that when... We just had an evaluation from our Build a 20. Our Build a 20 came out. They did an evaluation. And as much time as we spent in job descriptions and process, there was still overlap. Like double work is happening. People aren't sure who's responsible for what task and who takes you know, the baton. What I found, in the, especially in the last six months of really clearly defining and working on this, it's completely changed. Efficiency. I, I don't, I don't want to say motivation. But I should say at least, um, you know, happiness in the workplace and camaraderie and not that we didn't have good company culture before, but it's definitely enhanced that. And so I can imagine that with clearly defined roles, not only does it work for your marriage, but it also works with your employees, especially as you've grown to where you are now at Tankersley. Yeah. And, and, and Heather's been a big driver of that, um, too, where we actually done this several times because, you know, we have to we have turnover. People come and go. So we're always constantly monitoring and evaluating this, these roles. But we, we'll sit down maybe once a year and we do a post-it note exercise. Everyone gets a different color and they write down what they do every day. Just write down what you do and you just start writing notes. And then you start putting it up on the board, on the whiteboard. You kind of see where everything is. And all of a sudden you see that, you know, Brian's doing this and, you know, Jen's doing this. and They're doing the same thing. Like, why do we have this overlap? So we sit down and we start like the, we start defining actually like this is not your role, Brian. We're actually doing this. And. It helps everyone come together and it's a cool exercise. Heather's come up with it. I can't take credit for it, but it's, you know, we bring lunch in and we do it. It's like a three or four hour exercise and we talk about what we do and we walk away and we're like, you know what, actually that is not my role. We're doing this. So you can't just do it, but you can't just do it one time and say we did it, you know, in five years, you have to do almost every six months because it's always a value. It's always changing. You bring a new employee in the company or you create a new role. All of a sudden those roles are always changing. Um, we're in uh, a similar group, Remodelers Advantage, and we just had our case study um, about a month ago. Everyone came to our company and it was the same feedback. You know, hey, you're doing great. Your projects are awesome. Your company is very successful. But like you have these roles that people are overlapping on and maybe so-and-so is not understanding what their role fully is. And that was kind of eye-opening for us. So again, that's like the biggest challenge of building an organization is just defining those roles, making sure everyone gets along and communicates effectively. 
This episode is brought to you by Pella Windows. When it comes to building homes at AFT, almost every project has Pella Windows. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers, because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. Their their company culture, their integrity, their honesty, you know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra-contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So, For anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. So you mentioned Remodelers Advantage. Explain what that program is, especially if there's remodelers out there listening. Yeah, Remodelers Advantage is a it's a nationwide peer group, uh, Canada and United States actually, and um, peer group mentoring. So we're in a group of you know maybe I think eleven different companies uh, called Roundtable, and they're non competing companies. Um, we actually meet in little micro boards every couple of weeks, and every six months we go out to each other's company and we do an evaluation and audit of their company, and we look at all the good, the bad, the ugly. So. You have to present your whole company, all your org chart, your financials, your your you know your profit and loss, your whip, um, everything that's going on in your business and also personally. And we've kind of become friends and developed these close relationships over the years. So it's almost like a board of advisors um, that we have. It's it's really cool. It's um, and I think that's been a big factor in propelling our growth. It's just kind of through this this, this networking and this group. How long have you been in, and uh, how did you get introduced? Yeah, we joined um, joined fairly early in our company. We joined in 2000, actually joined late 2019. Um, and so we didn't have our first in-person meeting until 21. Uh, I got introduced through a friend and mentor who was in the group and uh, kind of brought us in and um, and we stayed on and, and we've really grown from there. And I know you came out to Phoenix, I think probably the first time we met in person, we toured around. What was the conference you were at here in Scottsdale years ago? Yeah, that was a Remodelers Advantage conference. So they have a yearly summit and, you know, speakers. Um, I think there's, man, there's probably 500 different companies in this organization um, or maybe more. Don't quote me on this. Um, and you all can't, you all meet once a year. And that's when I met you up in, in Scottsdale. I think that was 21 or 22. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I'm trying to remember what that was. Um, You're just but, breaking ground on that, that modern sunset build. So, yeah. So with, um, you know, with, with the remodels advantage, I think what's unique, you know, cause we have a build of 20. So essentially there's 500 built, you know, remodelers around the country. How do they distinguish what groups? So when you go in and say, I want to be in my own group, right? My own mastermind, any idea how they kind of formulate that or match you up with certain remodelers around the country? Yeah, it's, um, they really look at the personalities, number one of the, of the individual owners in the company, then also the company's uh, structure. So there's a lot of Maybe there's architecture or designer driven companies where they don't have in-house design, 
well, let me put you in a group with more of companies like that. So you're actually, you know, working with similar companies. Um, also similar revenue, uh, similar, you know, kind of similar status. So um, they're not going to put all, you know, all the time, a really green company who's really struggling with just getting their whip together with a lot of really advanced companies who've been in business for 20 years. You got to kind of work your way up. So there's different levels um, in within the organization. There's like a mentor level, you know, there's companies who are doing 20 or $30 million a year in renovations, been in business for 30 years. Their, their problems are a lot different than maybe a company who just started two years ago. Now, rewinding back, I know you touched on this a little bit, estimating, you know, one of the challenges a lot of us are having is just figuring out this climate. How has, you know, I know you're building in Northern California. How is pricing availability of trade labor supplies? How has that impacted you, especially in pre-con? Yeah. Um, like as we, so it's been a couple of things as we've grown, our products gotten more complex and we've been pushed outside of our comfort zone. And that's certainly pushed us on our pricing, but you know, just a few years ago, you can kind of look at a house and be like, okay, we can build, you know, the nice house for 300 bucks a square foot. And, you know, I, I hate using the square foot price because it's like the price in a car per pound, but you know, you can usually kind of gut check what something's going to cost and you're probably pretty close. So the balance we have, the, the struggle we have is that balance because customers, when they first call you, they want to know what their project's going to cost or at least the ballpark. So at some point you have to talk pricing before you're, you're engaged into a pre-construction or design agreement. Um, the challenge has been having that accurate conversation upfront and maintaining that through the process all the way to your estimate. So 2021, 2020, when prices were kind of shooting up, you know, we had a lot of like, honestly, we had a lot of pissed off customers in pre-construction who I told them, yeah, your addition is probably $350,000. By the time we get through the estimating process, it's 475,000 or 500,000, like it's dramatically different. And they're like, we spent six months with you in design. We spent $20,000 on plans. And like, you never told us, you know, what this was and it caught me off guard. So we actually implemented a process about a year ago we're like, look, we're going to do a budget check-in halfway through. It's it's uh, linked to structural engineering. So as soon as the flan floor plans are done, structural engineering is done, but, but uh, before all the finishes are picked, we're going to sit down, we're going to do a detailed, really detailed budget. And we're going to unit price everything on this project. And we're going to maybe get some cabinet bids and we're going to get, you know, maybe some framing bids. And we're going to know what this project's going to cost within a few percent. So now what we do is we sit down with the client halfway through at that budget check-in. We, we have an allowance worksheet for the designer to work on, you know, what our light fixture is in the entryway and cabinet handles and all that stuff. And we sit down with the client. We go, look, this is we initially said your project's going to be 400,000. We worked on this. It's 465,000. This is how we got here. Here's all our bids and here's what here's our uh, finishes. And do we need to pivot? Do we need to cut back on design? Or are you good with that? And if they go, yeah, we're good with that. Let's go forward. You know, there's a 99% chance the project's going to go. We're going to have a contract as long as we're within a, you know, 5% of that number. Um, so that that one budget check-in has been like so just drastically changing for our process and our conversion rate. I, I like that you do that. What I found here with architects, a lot of them that I'm working with, um, because again, what's happening is, as you mentioned, Precon can take a year, two years. I mean, I have a project that's like two and a half in design and architecture and permitting. And so you can imagine how pricing availability products change it in that time frame, right? That window. 
So the architect, what they're doing is they essentially are doing the design process. So they're working through schematics as far as, you know, how the house lays on the lot, what it looks like, you know, floor plan and so forth. And, you know, that process can take four or five, six months, uh, getting preliminary HOA approvals and so forth. But before they go to engineering, you know, full CDs, uh, they're doing a gut check, if you will. So they, they may have quoted a number to the client early on, maybe coordination with us. Typically with us, we're involved in that, like a ballpark, as you're mentioning. But now's kind of where the rubber meets the road still. I, it's not like I have enough information because I have no structural components, so I can't really hard bid it, right, for masonry and footings and concrete. But at least I can take what I have, use some historical analysis, you know, vet with a couple of my trade partners, kind of see, and then we we do a price check. So as you mentioned, Steve, the reason why this is so valuable and we're talking through this is so many clients will – have this understanding that, you know, I'm going to design my house and then go bid it, you know, get multiple bids. Well, the problem is one, a lot of times that that may exceed your budget or what they're comfortable spending. So you just wasted all this time and excitement and emotional um, buildup, you know, for something that may not happen. And then number two, uh, without a contractor involved, you know, they all interpret it differently, how they do their stem walls, you know, how, you know, products that they use, even though there's specification on the plans, a lot of architects kind of leave that open-ended. And so what's happening is now being involved in the process, we can communicate the whole time with the client. And like you said, we had a client that was expecting their budget to be around, you know, X and it came in at Y, you know, at that, at that gut check. And it's a good time to do that because one of two things can happen. The clients say, you know what, I want what I want and we're going to do it. And I'm okay investing extra dollars or let's pull back. Let's make these changes to get within budget. And then you haven't gone too far down the road and wasted all this money. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't think anyone, you know, clients don't realize what it takes to put together a proper proposal. Yeah. I can do an estimate. My estimate is it's, you know, X nine dollars. But to do a proposal, it's going to take all these resources to mobilize and develop those scopes of work like we talked about earlier. Um, the biggest the biggest challenge in this market, and I think right now with any contractor, is just expect- expectations versus reality. And I tell um, tell people all the time. Like it says even 20 years ago, 10 years ago, early 2000s, let's say, you know, the stuff that we're doing now in um, just basic kitchen models or bathroom models. I mean, that was extreme luxury, even in the early 2000s. For example, like you go into a bathroom, there's six different kinds of tile. There's a floor tile. There's a curb tile. There's a niche tile. Like like it's not just, you know, a 12 by 12 on the floor and a mosaic on the on the shower floor. And it's curbless. It's a depressed pan. Like these projects are getting so um, complicated in a lot of ways that uh, is being driven a lot by social media and just these great pictures that everyone wants. And that's awesome. We love building those complicated projects, but nobody's talking on the back end about what these projects actually cost to put in place. So, you know, you have a beautiful Instagram page. We do too. If I put price tags on what these things cost, like people, their minds would explode. And I don't think people, there's no one out there really saying what these things really cost. So, a lot of times we're the first person telling them what this project's actually going to cost you. And it's met with a lot of friction, a lot of resentment. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, um, as you said, buildings and construction is not getting easier, right? It's becoming more complex. There's there's more details. There's more finishes. And there's just so many products right out on the market that you and I have to be educated on. At You know, at Tankersley, being that you're in pre-con, who gets, you know, who's typically, I, I don't want to say bearing the bad news, but... Um, are you typically the one handling those conversations and hard budget conversations with the clients? 
Yeah, that, that, that's me. And I've uh, gotten a lot better over the years of <laughs> having those upfront conversations of people who think, you know, we do, we, we still do kitchen remodels and stuff. And um, they think their kitchen remodel is going to be 80,000. And I'm like, Hey, it's at least double, you know, what should we even be talking? And that's exactly what I say. I go, it's it's going to be at least double that. Should we want to continue the conversation and just having that upfront conversation and being direct. Um, sometimes people are caught off guard. It could be awkward, but I'm having those conversations. I'm presenting the budget. We re actually recently hired an estimator. He's been great to help take a lot of the day-to-day -day number crunching off my plate where I can focus on those client presentations. But um, but yeah, that's that's me. And you know, you never know what you're going to get with people going back to our conversation with people's personalities. I present a budget. I don't know if someone's going to, I kind of cringe, I wince. And I'm like, are they going to be okay with it? Or are they going to, I'm going to get a backlash or are they going to be mad at me? Are they going to shut down? And it's, it's always a crapshoot. So, um, you know, it's, you just never know what you're going to get with people. So, um, that kind of falls on me. And then once it's sold, it hands off to uh, construction on the other side. So looking back at just the organization, what's interesting is being that you, uh, really clearly understand your lane, as you mentioned, and kind of, you know, scope of work for you and Heather, um, how does, how do you coordinate hiring, you know, per department? Cause you may have a need in department. She may have a need, uh, in, in operations and you're trying to factor out budget and profitability and everything that goes into cost, right. Of, of hiring a new person. How do you coordinate in place, you know, new talent where it needs to go and, you know, and just to make sure that everything you're bidding and contracting and pre-con lines up with what you can perform in, in the operations. Yeah, that's um, that's that's a joint decision as both owners of the company. So any hiring process is together. Um, uh, we're not so big, you know. We have uh, eleven of us total. We're not as huge company, so we make those decisions uh, pretty, um, you know, just jointly. Um, and we're looking, we're forecasting. Hey, we we need another carpenter, you know, in probably next three months. We're gonna start putting the word out. Um, but that's definitely a joint decision because. Those, that's the person that's going to represent our name on the, on the, on the building, on the side of the trucks. Um, and so that's definitely something that we work together on. That's amazing. And um, how's that hiring process been as you bring someone in, you know, um, success rate? I know it can vary for company, you know, where, and, and maybe so much not success rate, but where do you find your talent? You know, people applying, how are you finding, you know, so many good people that work uh, at your company and are willing to, you know, put in the time and the effort in, uh, you know, for the benefit of, you know, Takersley. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, <clears throat> like our clients, it's, it's word of mouth, it's referral. Um, we, you know, it's a little bit of a mixture, but most people in our company were hired kind of through word of mouth, um, except for maybe a couple. Um, and it's just, we put the word out. We, if we were looking, we're forecasting way out. We're like, Hey, I think we need an estimator as we want to grow. We're looking out two, three years. Let's start putting the word out. Okay, well, when you put the word out, sometimes it comes quicker than maybe you really anticipated. And so, um, but we also use Indeed. Um, we use LinkedIn. We use even Instagram. We've hired uh, one of our best carpenters. We hired through Instagram of all places. So just looking in unusual places, um, you know, I, I've never had experience, uh, successful experience with Craigslist, for example. But, um, you know, it's, uh, we've, we've used uh, headhunters, recruiters, but the most successful is through word of mouth and, and through your contacts, through your trade partners. If you think you need a project manager, start putting the word out. Hey, I think I might want to hire a project manager. Do you know anyone? And you know, be surprised at who turns up. And, you know, right now, especially with those you brought on, 
any of those tie back from relationships you had back in the commercial world? Because I know both you and you and Heather have ties back to your commercial days. Yeah, um, you know, uh, you know, Brian, who's on our team right now, we go back to when we actually worked at a large commercial company before together. Um, <clears throat> it's hard to for us to get crossover from commercial to residential. There's still a very um, large stigma in our industry of it's just, you know, kind of people who, who aren't as good as us, you know, and I think sure you probably know about that, Brad. And um, it, it residential, I'm fine with it. It has a stigma. Great. You know, stay out of it. I want all the work. Uh, we're going to do a great job, but it's also hard to get people to cross over just because they feel like um, residential is not as good as commercial or is more drama or, or whatnot. None of that. It's actually true. Yeah. What do you see as the biggest difference, you know, between commercial and residential, you know, not just clients, but also just, uh, you know, trade partner support and vendor support and, you know, just on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. It's just a qualified, number one, qualified labor pool of of employees, of trade partners. Um, It's much more limited um, to find a good, for example, a good electrician or a good drywall sub that, you know, just doesn't wear shorts to the job site and doesn't drink beer (laughs) Like that's, that's the standard, right? Just don't do that. That's hard. So if we can meet that, you know, we're doing good. Um, but also it's the client experience and, and I, I appreciate it. Um, when we're doing small commercial work, let's say we're building someone's first, uh, you know, pizzeria or, or their first restaurant, we still have that experience where they're like really happy. And this is like their dream coming true. But when we're, if you're working on a hospital or a prison, like there's nobody really there to thank you. There's nobody, you know, really excited about it. They're just really contentious. Um, I have plenty of horror stories from commercial. I have plenty of horror stories from residential. But <laughs> at the end of the day, in residential, you're building someone's home. You're making their dream come true. In commercial, you know, maybe not have that same level of, uh, you know, attachment and happiness. Which, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a people person, and I love that. I want to be invited to the barbecues. I want to, you know, um, you know, just see you using your house, you know, be friends with you on Instagram and, and see, you you know, pictures of your kids having a birthday party in the kitchen. We did. I love that stuff. So that's the biggest thing. That's why I'm in this industry. Yeah. I love that part. I mean, there is something to go home about. I mean, I think that's just construction in general that, you know, it's a tough business, but at the end of the day, you get to see, you know, someone realize their dream, right. And you get to be part of that. And, you know, as the years go back or go, you know, pass, you can go back to these projects and see something that you worked on. You know, there's there's something tangible there that you've worked on and accomplished, you know, in, in your profession. Totally. So what made you get in construction? Um, well, my dad was a contractor. My dad was um, a plumber and um, kind of grew up with him. And he was a one-man show and helping him in the summers and the weekends. Um, I always thought I wanted to be an architect. I love my parents used to buy buy me the, the floor plan magazines at the grocery stores. And I would draw out my own floor plans on houses. I'm going to be an architect one day. And then I graduated high school and my dad was like, Hey, you know, just, just don't go in the trades. You know, it was kind of actually discouraged. It's like, you're going to end up like me and I'll go in the trades and I'll do something else. And so I'm browsing uh, the uh, catalog at Sacramento state university. And they had a, a, a program called construction management. I'm like, well, I like construction and I want to do management. So that sounds great. Um, I didn't realize it was basically engineering and I was horrible at math. Um, <laughs> so I struggled through, uh, through college. I did graduate with my degree in construction, construction management. And, um, you know, I, that was the best thing that happened to me. Um, and, uh, I love it. You know, I love seeing things get built. 
what we do is tangible. Um, we're not working on spreadsheets and just turning them in, you know, to see what happens. We're actually building something. It's uh, it's really a cool thing to have. It's, it's, it's a really unique industry, honestly. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. It's funny that you say that, that uh, I, I don't think most people realize because I did construction management as well, similar to you. And I don't think people realize that they're like you're taking statics and you know, even in surveying and engineering, like the structural and mechanics. I mean, there's a lot of math. We had to take calculus too. Um, so for those that are thinking of going that profession, you know, or at least that, you know, that way into the marketplace by getting a degree in construction management, do you feel that the education like prepared you for what you're doing now? I mean, how did that, you know, yeah, what's, I mean, what's your take on that? I mean, absolutely. <clears throat> you know, I, the, the history classes, maybe not so much, but um, the classes we took at Sac State, uh, I combined with an internship. I was lucky to go to a college in a major metropolitan area so I could take an internship while I was working. Um, that was huge. Um, so I worked for a heavy civil contractor building bridges in Northern California. It's like, hey, I don't really like uh, heavy civil construction. I'm going to commercial. Um, and while doing that, I'm also taking estimating classes and then doing real estimating in real life. Um, came out, I came out of that program. Um ready to go. Our, our capstone class was actually starting a company. And so when we actually started our company, I'm like, Hey, I've done this before, you know, remember how to do all these, you know, business plans and stuff too. So, um, really unique experience, but then also combined with that internship and that real world experience was huge. Um, you know, it's been a while for me, but, um, I I'm really involved in the program still because that was so impactful in my life. Um, I still, try to volunteer when I can. I have a goal one day, you know, I'd love to go back and teach a class, um, you know, at one semester a year um, and just staying connected with the university. It's, so best advice you've been given? Well, the best advice I've been given was from my mentor. Um, you know, he, he owns a really large construction company in the region. And it's just like, just let the team take your, take the credit. Don't, you know, it's not about you. It's about the team. Um, and I keep try to keep that in mind. It's, it's, you know, my name is on the company, but it's not me. I'm not the one out there putting the crown molding up, setting the cabinets. Um, it's our team. It's our amazing team. So let them take the, the credit for these, uh, these amazing projects. Um, so that's really the best advice I've been given from a business growth perspective. And kind of the best financial advice I've been given is just buy real estate. You know, it's, uh, that's been huge in our, in our life financially too. And just, you know, buying the building we're in and, and, and owning our house and all that too. So kind of those two things have been, monumental in our life. So where did the, um, I, I shouldn't say the education, but just like the information and, and, um, you know, your desire to be involved in real estate outside, you know, the brick and mortar outside of just the paper contracting side of your business. Well, I, I uh, when I was working in commercial construction, I wasn't real happy. I knew I didn't want to do what I was doing. So I actually got my real estate license before I got my contractor's license. So at one point I was actually a realtor on the side. I was working <laughs> on a, you know, a $50 million project and I was selling houses at night. Um, and I was like, yeah, this isn't, this is cool, but it's not really challenging for me. Um, so I've actually let my license lapse. I got my contractor's license in 2016. Um, but I've always loved real estate and, uh, and just, uh, just the concept of, uh, taking something and developing it, just the whole, I actually have my minor in real estate development as well from Sacramento state and just developing it and, and the whole process from, land acquisition all the way through completion fascinates me. So that's something I would like to, you know, dive into as I progress in my career. Yeah. 
It's interesting. Do you have any uh, aspiration? I know you're probably knee deep, you know, and so busy right now with uh, with Tankersley. Do you think there's ever an option where there could be a little bit more real estate arm in the company or development or, you know, your own projects that maybe be speculative? Yeah, it's, it's a goal of ours. And um, as a company gets gets going more and more, um, you know, possibly <clears throat> building some mixed use and dipping my toes back into you know a lot of commercial work. Um, so I, I could definitely see that happening probably the next, you know, five, 10 years. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I think what's really valuable, though, something you're doing that I'm sure you could speak to is I saw, I saw this in the last recession, the last housing crisis. Was there a lot of construction companies that, um, you know, they, they had uh, a lot of backlog. They had a lot of work on the construction, but they didn't have brick and mortar behind them, right? They didn't have a building. They didn't um, have anything tangible, right? So that when the market can be challenged as it goes up and down for us contractors, they didn't have anything to fall back on or at least have some, you know, we say passive income, but at least some income that could cover cost. And, you know, I, I think it's really smart for builders such as yourself that own their building, possibly have tenants in there, they're paying rent. And so it keeps your overhead low. You know, how did that play, you know, into your game plan, just owning your own building, you know, the value of that, you know, at Tankersley? Yeah. I mean, it's just like renting a house, you know, you're just, you're, you're paying hundred percent interest if you're renting your own office. So the opportunity came across our, our desk to be able to buy where we're at. We actually own a uh, unit next door as well. So we have um, some room to grow or right now it's a, it's a rental um, way. I look at it. We bought the building when I was you know 37 with a 25 year SBA loan. So, you know, in our sixties, it'll be paid off and cash flowing. Um, and that's part of that whole strategy of retirement, looking ahead and just different portfolios, you know, and assets to, to retire off of because, you know, construction, it's a great, it's a great career. Um, it's very rewarding, but then there's also, you know, you got to have other backup options and, and, you know, some of our, as my colleagues do it through rental properties or real estate development. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's a good thing to you know, possibly look at if, if you're not already at least own the building that you're in, um, as an option and, and rent it back for yourself. So, um, with that said, I mean, from your side, Steve, what is, um, you know, upcoming and exciting for you guys? Uh, we, we have a really good backlog. Um, the uh, market's still super strong where we're at. We have a really cool riverfront project uh, for a great client coming up. It's a full design build. Um, it's a mid-century modern house, um, originally built, I believe, in the 60s. And we're going back with that same vibe, but it's it's totally um, up to today's uh, standards and codes. Uh, full, I think it's a two-acre site development. So that one's going to be really exciting. Um, we'll be starting that towards the end of the year. We're in design development. Uh, we actually brought the architect in and we're managing the whole process. So that's that's a one we're really looking forward to. Um, you know, beyond that, uh, just continuing to, to grow steadily our company. Um, we have some other great projects on the books too as well. Um, and, you know, we, we put it all on, on Instagram every day. But um, that, that one we're really looking forward to on the river. So you mentioned the market. How is the market there in Northern California right now? It's still strong. I mean, we we work in the uh, you know the luxury market, um, and that market has has stayed strong. Um, I've definitely seen earlier in the year and late last year, I definitely saw a drop off in uh, inquiries and leads on some smaller projects and more budget focused projects. Those certainly dropped off, and some companies that I know um, that kind of work in that space more saw a definite drop off. 
And then about three, that last three months, I think people are more adjusted to the prices now and like just understand this is the norm. And so it's definitely, it's picked up. It's just, I feel like it's busy as it's ever been. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, that's awesome. So I really appreciate making time, Steve. I know how busy you are and to come on in, you know, on your work day means a lot. So for those listening, how can they find Tankersley and find yourself? Uh, well, I run the Instagram page. So it's uh, Tankersley underscore, underscore construction on Instagram. I'm also on LinkedIn, Stephen Tankersley. Uh, we're, you know, we're on Facebook, um, uh, YouTube. So, um, you know, Instagram really the best way. If you want to send me a message, that's me on the messenger and uh, me or Heather. And uh, yeah, let's connect. Well, I can commend you. I know, Steve, you spend a lot of time just in developing systems. I, I think I, it's pretty rare from my experience having networked with a lot of builders around the country, but specifically in the renovation and remodel world, what you guys have done, what you're creating, the operation size and you know your commitment to excellence. And it, it's really impressive what you guys are doing. So for those listening, I think there's a lot of value in following Steve and Heather and, and Thanks, their Brad. team and what they're doing. So yeah, I can't wait till next time we get to connect. Yeah, well, hopefully I'll see you in uh, uh, what um, Arizona, right? Yeah, we'll see you okay. in Arizona when you come on down. So uh, thanks again, Steve. All right, thanks. If you give value from the show, please support us by giving a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And I also have a favor to ask. We've had some incredible guests that come on and share their wisdom, their knowledge about their business. So if you have friends or family members that could benefit from those episodes, please share it with them, as well as any other business owners that you're networking with that could get value from the podcast or certain episodes, please share those as well. Again, subscribe, make sure you're following any questions that you have, topics. We've had uh, listeners reach out about certain guests that we should have on the show. Again, brad.l at aftconstruction.com. Email me for topics to address, guests that we should have on, and even if you think you'd be a great guest for the show. So again, thank you for all your support and we'll see you next time.